and I recognize uh, the value of diversity. I recognize the value of being able to uh, interact and learn from and just be in the presence of um, people who have different backgrounds and different experiences. And when you have those experiences to actually interact with, talk with, learn together with and from people who have different lived experiences than your own, that informs how you view the world, you know, and, and, I, and I believe oftentimes it informs it for the better. For me, you know, the diversity component, but then also the, the way that track and field can be used as a, a tool for educational access in a really proficient and profound way is something that has driven me uh, to do the work that I've done. What's up, everyone? That was Russell Dinkins. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, and others to help show you what's possible through the lens of running. I also put out a weekly newsletter on Tuesday mornings that features an eclectic and interesting roundup of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that I promise will inform, inspire, or entertain you in some way. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and your first issue will arrive next week. Okay, Russell Dinkins. I've been waiting a while to have this conversation, and it did not disappoint. Over the past couple of years, this man has helped save men's track and field programs at Brown University, Clemson, the University of Minnesota, and William & Mary. He's now the executive director of the Tracksmith Foundation, where he will continue that work while also helping create more opportunities and inspire broader participation in track and field through various forms of advocacy and assistance. Russell is also an incredible athlete. He has been competing since he was six years old. He ran collegiately at Princeton, where he was a 400 and 800 meter runner, not to mention a five-time Ivy League individual champion, and he's still getting after it and competing on the track into his 30s. In this conversation, we talked about the path he's followed in the sport, track and field as a vehicle for diversity and educational access, how his relationship to running has evolved over the years, what he hopes to achieve through his work moving forward, and a lot more. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. There's a whole lineup of new and updated models of shoes that will launch in the coming months, but I'm still loving the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 as my go-to training shoe for most of my non-workout days. The cushioning does a great job protecting my feet without feeling too soft, providing a fun, responsive ride. The upper feels like a snug sock around my foot and allows it to move freely and naturally while still giving me a secure fit. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is also super durable. I've gotten at least 500 miles out of each pair that I've run in, and they don't break down as quickly as other trainers that I've worn over the years. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. 
This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Precision Fuel and Hydration, who have a wide range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best. Longtime listeners of the show will know them as Precision Hydration, but they've changed their name to reflect the fact that they've been helping athletes nail both aspects of their performance for a long time now. Here's the deal. Everyone sweats differently, and the amount of fuel that we require varies depending on factors like the duration and intensity of our activity. So a one-size-fits-all approach to fueling and hydration just doesn't cut it. Head to precisionfuelandhydration.com and use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. Then book a free one-on-one video consultation with the team to refine your hydration and fueling strategy for your next race. I cannot stress how important and valuable this can be as we get into the spring racing season here over these next few months. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TMS22 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. That's capital T, capital M, capital S, 2-2 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. Okay, let's get into this one with Russell Dinkins. All right, Russell Dinkins, this one has been a long time coming. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into your work, I want to get to know you a little bit better first. What are your earliest memories of running and or track and field? Yeah, so I started running uh, when I was six years old. Um, My grandmother and I uh, were walking uh, from uh, the subway station in Philly and there was a team doing a fundraiser, um, and they handed my grandma a flyer. Um, they were selling water ice as a fundraiser. Uh, for anyone who knows Philly, it's a kind of a summer uh, local local treat. Um, it's like Italian ice, but it's better. Anyway, <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so they handed my grandma a flyer, and my grandma said, "Oh, this is this looks great," and she handed it to my mom. And my mom was super excited because she had loved track ever since she was a little kid, and uh, but didn't know that there were youth track programs that existed. And this is, you know, um, in the uh, in the mid '90s, so it wasn't like you could easily look up things on the internet as you can now. Um, so, yeah, she didn't know that they existed. So she got me signed up, and um, we had to wait a few months because they were preparing for their summer travel so i wasn't able to join them until the fall and so um i went there uh went to cross-country practice uh it was at belmont plateau in philly which has a huge hill six years old first practice i had to do a mile loop up this huge hill and you know running around and i hated it and i, <laughs> <laughs> I remember um you know crying and i tell my, tell my mom i didn't want to do that again and my mom you know in her you know infinite wisdom said, no, if you start something, you have to finish it. We're going to do this whole season. And then after that, if you feel the same, then we can talk about it. But you're going to finish the season. So <laughs> I remember crying, like begging not to be, not to have to go to practice <laughs> every day. But no, nah, I went to practice, you know, 
three days three days a week um and uh and i was terrible i was getting last and you know things like that but um you know then season ended and my mom said well you know there's indoor it's a little different you want to try that and i was like oh okay <laughs> you know and then after indoor it's like well there's outdoor it's a little different and i was like oh, okay and then after after that there wasn't really a question of whether i was going to do it again but the whole first year i wasn't very good um uh but um i eventually you know started to enjoy getting out there running and then um i slowly started getting better um uh, then I was starting to beat some of the kids on the team. And then by the time I was eight, I was actually very, very good um, for age group. I mean, I can remember my times at eight years old. I ran, um, what, uh, 525 in the uh, 1500, and I ran 65 seconds in the 400 at eight. So I was, uh, I was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good athlete. I actually won an AAU uh, national title at eight, which was awesome. Um, so, yeah, those were kind of early memories, um, you know, getting – Going from getting dead last in all my races to two years later um, being, you know, one of the best uh, age group athletes in the country. Um, so that was, um, you know, it was great to kind of uh, walk through that experience and and kind of to see that, you know, if you just go out there and try hard and, and, and work at it and have perseverance and don't let the immediate results discourage you, that you can improve. And uh, I've had ups and downs with track and field ever since. Um with my own career, but, um, you know, the, that has kind of been a constant if you kind of get out there and stay consistent and persevere, um, that good things can manifest from that. You mentioned not really enjoying it for that whole first year. Do you remember when you started to grow a little bit of love for it where you're like, I'm going to keep with this just like a little bit longer? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think I enjoyed, well, I think I enjoyed kind of I mean, it was kind of fun. You know, you would go to these different meets, particularly indoor. Cross-country sucked because it was cold. But <laughs> once you got to indoor, I was like, oh, this is fun. I could do different events and, you know. Um, and then I think it really started to change when I um, I was starting to beat one of the kids in practice uh, who I couldn't touch um, at all. I mean, he was the slowest kid on the team. And so the fact, and that's how I was actually the slowest kid on the team because I couldn't beat him. But then when I finally started to uh get close to him and then beat him in practice oh yeah now you know now i'm keeping up with derek now i'm beating derek hey good you know <laughs> you know and then i was getting you know next to last or you know or uh you know two places away from last uh uh then i eventually because they would give you participation ribbons but i eventually got one of the place ribbons at one of the meets like 12th place or something like that and i was like oh, i got a place ribbon you know so i think that is what um kind of inspired me to continue and i think i got interested in it um you know just being able to compete i've always enjoyed competing and so i think that is you know um what i was Interesting. And I don't actually, looking back, I don't remember ever really disliking the meets. I just think I just liked practice, you know, and I didn't really want to go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you're you're a true racer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, even yeah, even in college, it was kind of kind of the case. Um, yeah, I would I would show up um, when it counted. Some of my regular season races would not be great. <laughs> but um for for like the Ivy League championships and for um like regionals and things like that, I usually would have my best performances 
um, or my better performances um, at those kind of competitions. I mean, I can totally relate to that. I mean, when I started running cross country in high school, it was to keep in shape for basketball. And we didn't have much of a program. I love the racing aspect of it. But you know, the we didn't do much distance, but the two to four mile runs, I mean, that was just, I mean, it was just awful. And then as I kind of got into the career, and I mean, I, I ran longer distances than, than you did on, on the track. I mean, you know, you're running high volume, you've got these like long kind of like grueling workouts, but those are just a means to an end. I love the racing aspect of it, but you know, the, the training, I was like, I'm doing it because I need to, in order to, to race well, but otherwise I could like do without a lot of this other crap. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but this track program, cross-country and track program that you joined at six years old, it was in inner city Philadelphia? Yep, yep. So inner city Philadelphia. Uh, the name of the team is Mars Estate. It still exists. Um, it was founded in 1970, I believe. Um, so, And um, I had the good fortune of being coached by the founder of the uh, of the track team. And I was... A part of Mars Estate from the age of six all the way um, through uh, 18. Um, so I, I was really, really fortunate to um, to be a part of to be a part of that. And I even ran under Mars Estate. Actually, technically, until I was almost 19, I ran under Mars Estate at um, USA Junior Nationals. Um, so yeah, so I guess uh, from <laughs> uh, six to 18 plus, almost 19. What was the group like? Like, what was the makeup in terms of boys and girls? Was it diverse in terms of the events people were focusing on, but also racial makeup of the people who were part of the group? Ages? Like, was it mostly youth focused? I mean, you said you you ran for them up until you were nineteen. Help paint a picture of that for me. Yeah, so it's a youth track and field program. So um, it's not a um, you know there wasn't a kind of a adult club aspect of it or a you know a post collegiate aspect or anything like that it was just, it was a it was a youth track and field program and there are a lot actually in Philadelphia um and in other inner city uh, locales across the country and uh we particularly uh we basically did the USATF um junior olympic circuit and then also the AAU junior olympic circuit those are the two that we would do um the team was mostly comprised of folks from inner city Philly. Um, and, um, the team was, uh, majority black. Um, so the coaches were all black. Uh, the athletes were majority black. I would say probably like 90% of us were black. Um, but there were always, uh, you know, uh, some, some other folks. Um, we had, uh, one guy, his name is uh, Jeffrey. Um, uh, he and his family would come from, Winslow, New Jersey, which is not that close. Um, it's about an hour and change away. Uh, but the club team that existed around where he lived wasn't very strong, and we were good. So his dad was like, "Well, now I'm going to take you to the to the team that's really good." So he would come out, and and you know, to to his, to him and his parents' credit, um, he didn't just run under us, but he would come to our practices. So they would drive you know, to enter city Philadelphia and, you know, um, and, and train with us. Um, and so he was fully a part of the team. Um, and we had some other uh, kids. We had, we would always have, you know, a handful of, uh, a small handful of white kids. Jeffrey was white, um, um, who, uh, would join either, um, through, uh, through their connection to another person who was on the team or, um, 
we had a, a handful of Hispanic kids um, who uh, came from New Jersey. Um, he's one of the coaches lived out in New Jersey, and he um, worked at a high school that had a high Hispanic population. So there was a – and now that I'm thinking about it, no. The team was pro- – Marseille was probably more like 95% black at that point. Um, uh, very little um, uh, kind of uh, – there weren't too many other kind of racial groups that were uh, that were involved in, in the – in the um, on the team when I was coming up, but we always had a few, and they were always fully, you know, fully welcomed into the team, and um, it was a it was an awesome dynamic. And the thing that's interesting about Philly, Philadelphia is, I think demographically, I think it's the largest black population of any of the any of the big cities in the U.S. I think it's about forty something percent black. So um, you're, you're drawing from a very kind of a, you know. A very large minority population, you know, in the city, and, and that that's kind of reflected in uh, track and field. For some reason, um, track and field in Philly is is very very black. Um, there aren't, I can't think of any of the teams in Philadelphia that are majority white um, or or anything like that. Most of the teams are are majority black. Um, in South Philly, where a lot of the white folks of Philly live. Uh, I don't. I, the youth sports system is different down there, uh, but they're not involved in track um, for some reason. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, um, we were our team was mostly um, black. We were all boys at that point. Now, Marshall State is co-ed, <laughs> um, and now actually Marshall State is more diverse too because now people can easily find the team online and things like right. that back when we were doing it, it was really word of mouth so if you weren't a part of a certain community you wouldn't know about it so why do you think the makeup of your team and a lot of the teams in that area were i mean you said and this is an estimate 95 percent black i mean there's got to be something to you know philly in general as you said it's like 40 percent black so it's got a high percentage of of the population that that make it up and some of that's going to you know translate to the representation on a on a team like this but you know knowing what you know now and through the work that that you're doing can have you done any thought experiments on that and it's like oh well this is why it was the way that it was yeah i don't really i can't really pinpoint it because the the other track and field teams like the other youth teams that were in the area um that weren't philly based um some of them were majority white like the ones in the suburbs um but all the ones in the city were majority black i don't know why it's just like the white population in philly um a large percentage of the white population in philly lives in south philly um they just weren't a part of the youth track scene at all so if you so when we did because we would run against people in our region so there would be the philly track uh clubs and then the clubs from jersey and delaware and um from um the outlying suburbs and in, in philly um the teams that were majority white were from kind of those outlying suburbs um and then all the majority black teams are either from philly or from um a certain part of jersey um basically <laughs> uh, the part of jersey that's really close to philly or like uh, Dover, Delaware, you know, again, pretty close mm-hmm. to Philly. Um, yes, I don't know. I've never really thought about it, um, to be honest. Um, 
I don't really know what is kind of. I know there's a strong South Philly sports scene, but South Philly, if anyone knows about Philadelphia, South Philly is kind of its own thing. Its own world. <laughs> yeah. And they and they, they kind of, uh, South Philly kind of stays to itself. Even even the black folk in South Philly, actually, South Philly is actually pretty diverse. I mean, there's a pretty large Asian population. There's a decent black population, um, very sizable white population, but they all kind of stay in South Philly. And it's its own little microcosm. I lived in South Philly a little while ago um, for about a year, and it definitely is a different. I mean, it moves differently. You know, <laughs> even the parking is different. I mean, the parking rules are different. It's just a, it, it's its own little world down in South Philly. But um, I, I enjoyed it. It was cool. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really, um, I can't really, uh, can't really put my finger on it. Um, but yeah, one of the, the one of the great things though about track is that. Um, you know, and I was able to notice this you know, from a young age is that uh, we were able, it was a lot more meaningfully, but you would end up um, interacting with and running against and competing against people um, who live in different places with different perspectives um, a lot more often. So I also played youth football um, when I was a kid, and it was really interesting how segregated it was. There was the Pop Warner League, and then there was another league that was a suburban league, and these two leagues never played against each other. I don't want to say never. We would... We played against suburban teams, like, maybe once a season, but they had a different weight class system, and so, literally, all the inner-city black teams would just play against each other, then all the uh, suburban teams would play against each other, whereas track and field, um, all the teams would come together, like, almost every weekend for the different meets. And sometimes the meets would be in Philly. Sometimes the meets would be in the suburbs. It would kind of alternate. And so we were interacting and, and competing against and, and hanging out with all these different folks, you know, every single week. I mean, that's how we got Jeffrey because Jeffrey was actually on another team and he was interacting with us. And his dad was like, oh, this seems like a great team. And, oh, they're really good. Okay. <laughs> you know, let, let, let me uh, bring my kid over to you guys. So um, I think that was one of the really awesome things that – I didn't experience in football, you know, at all. And I knew about the other leagues, um, but we just never competed with them. So, I think it's such an important observation because what you just described, I think, is part of what makes track and field such a beautiful and universal sport is it's very, like, egalitarian in, in that way. I mean, you know, yeah, you had your team. You're all from inner city Philly. I mean, South Philly has their stuff. Like, there's other groups – you know, all over the place, but you step on the starting line. It's like, okay, it doesn't matter where you're from, what color you are. It's like, we're all, we're all on like equal ground right here. And it's just about who can get around the track the fastest. And, and that, and that's not something that exists in football, like you just described, or even some basketball programs like that, where, you know, there's, there's just this like natural meshing that, that occurs. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, I think it's really, you know, really awesome in that way that, you know, how track and field is so, you know, egalitarian. Um, and I mean, there are two different junior national championships. So you have AAU or USATF um, and you kind of sometimes the meets conflict. So you have to kind of pick your pick your pick the one you want to go to. Um, but it's, you know, at least there is kind of one of two pretty equally valued endpoints. Um for you to strive towards. Whereas 
in a lot of the, a lot of these other sports, it's like okay, you could be a really good athlete, but it depends on what league you're in, and if you're able to get into like a travel team, and 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 these travel teams only compete in this kind of league, but the, these other travel teams compete in this league, and you, you need to try to get into the other league, but it's political and also maybe cost prohibitive. Um, you know, there's just a lot of other factors that make uh, that make it meaningfully like more difficult. Now, I will say the barriers to entry for basketball and football do tend to be much lower than um, the non-track and field Olympic sports, you know. Um, so, um, and the, the, nominal, the nominal cost for basketball is actually, you know, pretty reasonable. Football is interesting because football does have equipment, but for some reason, football still isn't that expensive. I think football has a really strong um, infrastructure of... Uh, <clears throat> well, I know, for instance, when I played football, we uh, my, our coaches gave us, hey, there's this, like, place where they sell used football equipment and i was able to go there and buy used pads um mm-hmm. and used helmet like everything and it was pretty cheap um i think that sort of ecosystem exists with football whereas it doesn't it doesn't seem to exist really in any large capacity for you know any of the other um uh, sports uh you know and soccer is interesting to me because soccer should be cheap but it is made artificially expensive um, youth soccer mm-hmm. is very expensive in the U.S., but if you think about, I mean, soccer is one of glo- it's the biggest, like the arguably the biggest sport in the world. Um, it is dominated by countries that are like developing or you know aren't as resourced as we are. And when you think about the equipment needs of soccer, it's literally just a field, a ball, and you don't even really need a goal. You just like two sticks in the ground, you know, to to designate um, a goal. Um, so the actual kind of infrastructure costs of soccer are pretty low, but it's made artificially expensive in the U.S. due to kind of the organizational structure that surrounds youth soccer, um, which is interesting. Track and field, uh, you know, uh, when you in terms of equipment, but also in terms of like the infrastructure around it, it's a very affordable, accessible sport in that way, um, and. You know, it also takes away a lot of kind of subjectivity because at the end of the day, did you run faster than Jimmy? Did you did you beat Sandra? Higher. You know, <laughs> you know, in the high jump, um, did you throw the shot put further? You know, and um, and that makes it kind of kind of uh, beautiful in a way. Aside from football, did you play any other sports as you were growing up? In addition to track and field. No, I didn't play any other sports. Um, yeah, so it was football for about three years, and then, um, then I decided to focus on track, and then it's been track ever since. I had a brief moment where my senior year in high school, I decided to go out for the football team um, just because I thought it would be cool to do, and the football coaches were salivating, and they're oh, my God, you're so fast, or whatever. And they were doing hand time, so, like, Hold this with a grain of salt, but they did a 40 test and it was like four, 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 five, or something like that. And they were like, Oh my god, you know, this is gonna be so great. Um, you know, it was hand time, so it's probably a little bit slower than that. Um, but um, it was still, it was still much faster than any of the other, any of uh, the other kids on the team. And 
you know, the idea of me kind of getting out there and like doing football just sound really appealing, you know. Uh, and I told my mom, my mom was like, Russell, what the expletive are you doing? You're being recruited for track. Like, why are you going to like do football your senior year and then possibly get hurt? And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> well, why did you want to do football heading into your senior year after having been away from it for a while? I don't know. I think it was just like the the, the idea of like, oh, I can play football, then I can be really good at it. And not to say that I thought I was going to go to college in football like at all. Like I knew that wasn't going to happen. But I don't know. There was – I think there was just kind of like a – for lack of a better word, like a sexiness to being sure. um, a, a a top, you know, like the football star of of, of my high school. Um, you know, I was, and and that's kind of I kind of hate to say that because like yeah, I was like dominant in track and field in my high school, but for some reason, you know, there's still like this cultural cachet that football has that track, um, you know, doesn't have in the same way. Thankfully, my mother, again, in her infinite wisdom, were like, boy, cut that out. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> so, I, so I, so I, you know, uh, pulled back from the football team and then rejoined the cross-country team and then, you know, did the cross-country thing, which, you know, did not give me the same sort of social accolades. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was very well respected in my school. Uh, um, it wasn't, it, it, it was just kind of like this, I guess, this. Um, this uh, what if ism? Oh, what if I was like catching, you know, this pass as a wide receiver, and then you know, scoring a touchdown, and like ah, yeah. But you know, I quickly realized like that is that idea is nice, but when you haven't played the sporting gears, where where there is a possibility that you may injure yourself, not only because it's a dangerous, well, it's a contact sport, but you also haven't played it, so your body just isn't used to what goes on in this sport. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, you probably shouldn't do this. <laughs> um, also, you know, you know, if that if that would have jeopardized my ability to use track and field to get into college, and I was being actively recruited at that point by several institutions, and it looked very promising that I would be able to uh, get full ride offers, which I did. I was fortunate enough to get a few full ride offers, but eventually, you know, but ultimately decided to go to an Ivy League institution that doesn't have scholarships but has generous financial aid. Um, either way. I was like, yeah, I don't need to mess this up by saying, hey, coach, I injured myself playing, injured my ankle, you know, playing football, you know. Kiss it all goodbye. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that was the right decision. Um, but no, I didn't do any other sports. Um, I do think it probably would have been nice to have experienced something different like soccer or or basketball. But since I was doing track all three seasons, track just kind of became – became what I did. Um, the only other extracurricular thing that I ever did, um, I did the play. Um, I did plays in, in high school. Um, and um, <laughs> I, you're only supposed to do one extracurricular um, a season, but I kind of worked it out so I can do the play and still run. <laughs> so I would, uh, I would uh, take a minor role. How'd you swing that? Well, you know, it's got to have charm and, and you know, <laughs> But um, the way I swung that was um, I 
So I, I did it interestingly. So my first two years of high school, what I did was I you know, told the play that, hey, I'm going to be running as well. So they would give me a more minor role. So I would have like a, a medium-sized role. I would have some lines, but I wouldn't need to be there every day. And so the days I didn't need to be there, I would go to track practice. Um, and then um, I would go, and since the play didn't require your weekends until, you know, the performance weekend, I would be free to go to the track meets. So I would go to the meets on, on Saturdays. Um, my junior year, since I knew my junior year was important for recruiting purposes, I didn't do the play and I focused solely on track. And then my senior year, since I was already like being actively recruited, um, I didn't do track and I just focused on the play because I wanted to get a lead, which um, I got one of the leading roles. So that's, uh, so that's kind of how I balanced it. What was it about the play that was appealing to you? Hmm. Had you always been involved in, you know, drama, acting, that sort of thing? I, I'd love to just understand that a little bit better. I don't know. It's just something different. I mean, when I went to my when I went to middle school, um, uh, went to Germantown Academy. Uh, that was the first school that I went to that offered a play every season, and so I. Um, I was oh yeah, I always kind of wanted to try it, you know. So I joined the play, and um, every uh, every winter uh, they would do a musical, so I would, uh, so I did the musicals, and um, yeah, I think I've always been like curious about the arts. Um, in college, I was a part of a bunch of different artistic groups. I was a part of a dance group. I um, was on the step. I was a member of the step team. Um, I actually was like artistic director for the step team uh uh was a part of african acapella group so i kind of always um have been interested in doing the arts um so not as a primary focus but as something that was kind of a secondary interest i mean track and field always um was uh you know kind of took priority but it was kind of nice to be able to experience uh, you know other parts of myself and not be one-dimensional in that way um so provided a nice balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was cool. And you know, it was, you know, there weren't too many like folks in like the theater realm who were also, you know, really um who were also top athletes. So that was kind of a I actually liked that balance being able to be a um you know, be one of the best athletes, you know, in, in my school, um uh, but then also being someone who was you know, in the play, um, or, you know, a part of like the choir and, and being able to, um, mix it up, uh, mix it up, uh, with, with them. So yeah, that, 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 that was, that was a fun thing. Because of that, did you have a more diverse social group? And I mean that in that you have the, the kids who are mostly focused on play and then you've got your track and field team. And maybe there was some overlap between the two. I don't know, but in, in a lot of schools, like those tend to be kind of distinct groups. Was that your experience? So it was my, that was my experience um, a bit at Germantown Academy. because That was a bigger school. When I went to high school, I went to Wilbraham and Monson Academy. I actually started out at Germantown Academy and then transferred to Wilbraham and Monson, which is a boarding school in Massachusetts. The boarding school is very was very small, only 300 kids. And so since it was pretty small, everyone kind of had to do a little bit of everything. And it wasn't large enough to whereas people could have these really well-defined, distinct social circles. So 
people like social circles would just naturally just mix. Um, so yeah, I actually found it very easy to uh, to have a friend just based off of our mutual interests and not based off of what we did. Um, I mean, my uh, two best friends in uh, high school, um, one did outdoor track with me, but he did other things during the other two seasons. Um, and then another uh, kid, he we never did a sport together at all or any sort of extracurricular um, together. Uh, we had some classes together, but um, but yeah, we had we had mutual interests and and we and we um, you know just enjoyed hanging out with each other. Um, so so that was a uh, you know so that was great. And we also had a huge international population um, of the people who boarded at the school. It was I would say probably like. 70% international. So it was, it, it was, uh, it was, it was really, really great. And, you know, I mean, you would just talk about different cultures, food, um, you know, just learn about, uh, you know, uh, different folks' experiences. Um, and so I think that uh, I, I really am very thankful and grateful for that experience, being able to um, be in such a organically diverse place where diversity is there but it is just happening in a way that is just organic and it's not contrived or you know feels as if it is you know just something for uh, for show it, it literally i would be sitting at a table sometimes eating lunch or dinner and uh you know just notice oh wow everyone at this table is from a different country just like just straight up you know <laughs> you know like that you know and it it, it, it will be no issue. We will all be, you know, chatting and eating together, and you know. Um, and one of the one of the one of my favorite memories, actually, I was sitting at a table, and it was kind of like a, a table where everyone's from a different country, like I said before. And then um, some people, you know, would get up one by one. People would leave, and then I noticed at the table it was just me, and then these two Japanese girls, and um, I was eating or like doing something. Um, else not really paying attention and they were kind of talking to each other you know they were kind of having a sidebar conversation and then i realized i was like hey hey ayano arena like you guys are having your own conversation but you're speaking in english like i'm not i'm just kind of sitting here but i'm not paying attention you guys can speak in japanese it's fine and you know they had been speaking for several minutes to each other in english and they're like oh yeah no we know but we don't want you to feel left out. And so we just decided to keep talking English. And I was like, wow, you know, like, you know, I would not have been offended if they decided to speak in Japanese because they were talking to each other and no one else at, was at the table. And I was paying attention. I was kind of looking at my phone or eating or something. You know, I was not paying attention to what was happening. Um, but it was just like those kind of experiences that were just really, really awesome. Um, kind That's of cool. being in like the shared community and, and being cognizant of you know others in that community i thought i thought it was really really awesome and i expected college to be like that and college wasn't like that and the world isn't like that unfortunately but i'm really glad that i was able to experience that um you know um you know during during high school because of that in some of the work that you're doing now not that you'll ever get to to that place but because of your experience, is that something you're trying to cultivate for other people where there is just, you know, that kind of organic 
diversity and interaction and, you know, people making others not feel left out in a, in a given situation? Um, I'm not necessarily trying to cultivate that or replicate that. Um, more so it's that I recognize uh, the value of, you know, diversity. Um, I recognize the value of being able to uh, interact and learn with learn from and just be in the presence of um, people who have different backgrounds and different experiences. And when you are, when you have those experiences to actually interact with, talk with, learn together with and from um, people who have different lived experiences than your own, that informs how you view the world, you know? And, and I, and I, believe oftentimes it informs it for the better, for the better. And so it's not that I uh, am trying to replicate what happened in high school for me. It's more so that I uh, recognize the the value of what I experienced. Um, and, and that value is something that probably in a uh, in an implicit way kind of kind of informs you know w- what I aim to do in a lot of different ways that but then also just knowing that um, particularly with you know fighting to save track and field programs um, the <clears throat> The value of education through sport um, is something that also just really, really drives me. And going back to my experience with Mars State, from the very beginning, uh, our coach, uh, the late great uh, Bob Jackson, uh, said that this is a college preparatory program. This is a vehicle for you to get to college. Once you get to college, you know, I don't really, you know, that's not my uh that's not my that's not something that i am 100% focused on you know you don't have to run another step all i want you to do is use this as a vehicle to get you um into college use this as a vehicle for educational access and to be able to uh achieve uh something through your running and so uh for me you know the diversity component but then also the the way that track and field can be used as a a tool for educational access in a really proficient and profound way is something that has driven me uh, to do the work that I've done. That's beautiful, man. I appreciate you sharing that. We're going to dig into it a little bit deeper here in a bit. But you mentioned earlier how within a couple years of getting involved in track and field, you were competing at a national level as a youth. And I know that eventually you came to specialize in the 400 meters and the 800 meters. Was that kind of your bread and butter from the early days? I mean, I know as a, as a kid, you get to experiment in other events as well, but did you know early on, like, yeah, these one, two lap races are going to be my thing? Well, um, (laughs) I guess yes and no. So what, I guess one of the, (laughs) One of, I guess one of the downsides. Uh, so the Philly track, for some reason, at least back when I was running, almost every coach trained their athletes to be able to do 
um, the relays. Uh, and so for youth track, there's four by one, four by four, four by eight. And so it just made sense to be able to train your athletes to be able to run a, a good 400 and a good 800. So almost everyone who came through the Philadelphia track scene um, uh, was kind of like a some some combination of a 400, 800 kind of athlete. Um, obviously, you would have some athletes who would, who would specialize in shorter distances and some that specialize in longer distances. But um, uh, most of our training was kind of, you know, geared towards getting us to be able to run decent 400s and 800s. Um, I didn't necessarily like set my eyes on, oh, I'm going to run, you know, the 800. I mean, I really thought I was going to be a 400 meter runner. Um, I loved the 400. Still, still really appreciate it. I think it's a great event. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I do think I had some acumen for it. I think if I focused on it in college, I probably, so I ended up running 46 high open in college. I think if I focused on it, if I had specific enough training, I do believe I probably could have got to 45 something, but I don't think it would have been much faster than that. It may have been 45 high, 45, seven. Um, I do think my upside in the 800 is a lot higher. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's the event that I've gravitated towards because it just naturally, you know, fits me. I mean, I've, I've only run 22 flat in the 200 and, you know, top 400 meter runners need to be able to break 21. You know, they need to be able to run 20.8 or something like that. And I'm pretty far away from that. So, um, yeah, so I, I think the 800 was just naturally an event that kind of fit me. But I used to, I kind of did a little bit of everything. I mean, we, uh, as a kid, I would run four by ones and we, you know, we were nationally ranked in the four by one. Uh, we, uh, we, we broke records in that event. Um, I remember as a kid, I had records from the 200 all the way to the 1500. I'm in different events. Um, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, what did I, I think I ran 30 in the 200 at eight, um, 240 in the 800 at eight years old. Yeah, I think that's right. 65 and then 525 in the 1500. Um, so yeah, I kind of did all those events. Um, I didn't really start kind of, kind of settling on the eight until a little bit later. I, I mean, I used to love the 1500 too. I just, the 1500 started getting really hard for me and I wasn't as competitive and I kind of drifted away from it. So I kind of stopped doing the 1500 by the time I was like 10 um, competitively. I would still run some, you know, for, for training purposes, but I wasn't as competitive in it um, as I was when I was a kid. Um, I mean, I won a national AU title in the 1500. Um, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was an event that I started with, but um I guess when the 1500 kind of wasn't really working for me anymore, and then I kind of just moved down to the eight. Um, and then I would kind of do the eight and the four for a while. And then I stopped being as competitive in the four. So I was like, okay, I guess there's only one left. It's the eight. Um, so when I was, um, when I was 18, so AU championship. So I won, I won nationals individually twice, once at eight. And then the next time wasn't until I was 18. I got a whole bunch of thirds and, you know, fourths and fifths and seconds. And, you know, but it took me 10 years to finally get on top of the podium again. And that was an 800. Um, I made the final in the 400 that year too, but I got seventh. I probably could have, realistically, I probably could have got third in that race if I ran a smart race. I ran a dumb race. I 
thought I needed to spurt really hard, so I got out super fast and died a miserable death. <laughs> like the last, the last, um, you know, because I was, you know, I was thinking in my head, oh gosh, I'm running against these sprinters, so I need to like sprint. And it's like, yeah. no, just do what you normally do. Um, because at uh, 18, what did I run? I ran at AU Championships, I ran 152.3 and 800 to win. And then I had to run 47 to make it to the final um of the uh of the 400 but then in the final I ran 48 something because i ran a stupid race but um but yeah so that, that was a um yeah but how did i settled on 800 i guess it just was like i i would be entered in all these races as a kid and as i got older um the race that i just kind of proved to be more competitive in was the 800 but there was a period of time where when I wasn't as competitive in either, in, in, like in any race, um, I was getting beaten like pretty badly by everyone around 12 to like 14, 15 age period. A lot of kids developed faster than I did. So, I mean, their times just dropped a lot faster than mine did. And I didn't really develop until um, a, a bit later, and my times didn't develop either. And um, I'm actually very fortunate that I was older in high school um, than you are typically. Um, I was already older, and then when I transferred, I actually repeated a year. Um, so I repeated my ninth grade year, and that actually gave me you know, some more time because if I was on a traditional high school track with my age, I would have, so my freshman year would have been my junior year, I was about a two-flat athlete at that point. Um, you know, so if I was in... You know, so if I was a junior at two flat, I you know wouldn't have had any sort of recruitment right. opportunity. Um, but I ended up graduating um, with PRs as one fifty one nine and forty seven six, and then you know improved those you know once I got to college. Um, and so it was definitely D one quality, but it just took me longer to get there. Um, and so it was actually kind of a kind of a blessing that I had you know the extra time to develop because I just wasn't running super fast at fifteen sixteen. Like I literally went from you know sixteen running, what, what, what did I run sixteen? Um, I think one fifty nine. Sixteen, seventeen. I ran one fifty five, and then one fifty two. Yeah, so. When you were struggling in those middle years, like 12, 13, 14, up to 16 years old, were you ever discouraged by that and considered putting track and field aside? I never thought about I never thought about quitting, no. And I also never thought that I was like worse than those guys. I just thought that they were better at me at the at the given time. And the thing that was really cool is um, all those guys were running. I mean, most of those guys that I was competing against that were beating me, I ran against when I was 18. And many of them were in that 800-meter final, you know, that I ended up winning. So it, it, it was really just like, you know, just being patient. Um, but, you know, I never, I never thought, like, I never even remember thinking that, oh, these guys are better than me. I was like, yeah, they're, they're better at me. They're better than me right now. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of, how I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to get better. It's going to take me some time. Um, and I think it also was nice that, you know, since I was on a team that had other athletes who were pretty good, we were all able to 
do relays. So I still had opportunities to go to nationals and, um, you know, run at a high level just through our relays. I just didn't do it. And I just didn't do it individually um, for, you know, for a good period of years. And then, you know, I kind of was able to improve individually and, you know, was able to make something happen. So, <laughs> so that was, um, so that, so that, that was awesome. I don't think I ever like thought about, no, that never even entered my mind, like to quit. No. How did you end up deciding on Princeton over some of the other schools that were recruiting you out of high school? Yeah. So the Ivy League found me. I didn't really, I wasn't really looking for the Ivy League, to be honest. Um, I wanted to go to a, a school that had a really good combination of athletics and of academics um, because I, I did want to go to an academically rigorous institution. That was something that was important to me. Um, so my target school was Duke um, because I thought that was um, a really good fit. And at the time, my times uh, were more in line with uh, Duke's program at the time. Uh, and so when I was a 155 athlete, there weren't too many schools that were interested in me, but Duke was interested. And they, you know, they were, yeah, this would be great. Your grades are solid, you know, um, you know, and I thought that Duke would be a great place where I could develop because I knew, was like, I knew that I was a better athlete than 155. Um, I was at a boarding school that uh, had a very modest track and field program. The track and field program at my high school, um, it was more kind of it operated more like a as a recreational kind of activity versus kind of a you know. Um, you know, kind of instead of a high-level sport. And that was reflected in the school records. When I got there, the boys' school record in 800 was 208. The record in the 400, I think, was 52, 53, something like that. Um, the school record in the 1500 was 420-something. <laughs> so the times are really modest. Um, and so I would have to be the one who was really pushing for me to go D1. And I, I remember telling the coach when I got there, hey, I want to go to college for track. I mean, I, I want to get recruited to track and field, for track and field. And the coach, you know, when he first met me, because he never seen me run, um, was, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that, that's nice. Because they never had that. And then he saw me run, yeah, and then he was like, oh, okay, wow, okay, this is, this is, a, this is a little different. So I, um, what I did was I talked to the coach, and thankfully he kind of let me – like organize my own training in a big degree. So um, I didn't necessarily write my own workouts because I wasn't that sophisticated and I wasn't, I wasn't a track and field like nerd. Like I didn't read any of, you know, the great uh, coach coaches books. I wasn't on the, the forums and stuff where I could know about periodization and different energy level, uh, energy systems and, and, and things of that nature. I didn't know much about training at all, but I did know, so, okay, I need to get better, and I don't have a coach that can get me there here. So what can I do with what I have? So I asked the coach, I said, hey, at our dual meets and our tri meets, we had two meets a week. Um, you know, I, can I run the 1,500, the 800, um, the 400, and the 4x4? What's that? That's basically an interval workout. So I was doing that twice a week. <laughs> um, and then uh, the other days of the week, I would just go for – you know, I would just go for some pretty decent runs, you know, six, seven, eight miles. Um, not every day, but, you know, that, that would be, 
Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they did have some workouts that we were doing on the track and they were kind of, you know, they, they weren't anything crazy, but I would do some of the workouts that, uh, they would prescribe to us. But I think the biggest thing was doing, um, was doing those four events every single meet, um, doing the, uh, the 1500, 800. Um, sometimes I would swap out the open four for like the high jump or something. Um, uh, but I would always run almost as a rule, the 1500 and the 800. Um, and even though I didn't really love running the 1500, you know, in high school, I knew that I needed to, you know, get that kind of work in. And um, and that gave me a decent base. Um, and then when I would go back to Philly over the summer, I would be in decent enough shape for my Philly coach to be able to train me to get into, you know, a higher degree of shape. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, but, um, so, yeah, well, I was running 155. Um, Duke was interested in me. But then I ran faster in the four and at the eight. Um, and then I started to get some kind of uh, letters and calls from other folks, particularly when I ran 151. So I ran 151 at the U.S. Junior Nationals. And um, that's when I started getting um, some more kind of um, looks from different schools. And Princeton was actually the first school that called me on July 1st, which was the first day of your summer going into your senior year that you can receive phone calls, at least back then. I don't know if the rules have changed. Um, and I hadn't received any information from Princeton um, before then. And so I was kind of surprised to get a phone call from from Princeton, um, you know, that I got a call from the coach. And he said, hi, you know, my name is uh, Steve Dolan. He was the coach of Princeton at the time. He's now the director of track and field at um, at the University of Penn. He called him and said, yeah, you know, we you know, we're interested in you and we would love to, you know, talk to you about um, joining our program here at Princeton University. And um, I was kind of like, Princeton? Oh my God, like what? I'm not even thinking about that, you know? And so uh, that kind of started me looking seriously at the Ivy League because I didn't think that was an option. Um, and uh, a number of other Ivy League schools contacted me, Columbia and a few others. Um, and, uh, just looking at all the things that I wanted, I wanted to go to a medium sized school. Being in Massachusetts for four years of high school was nice, but I kind of wanted to be a little closer to home. Princeton is closer to Philly. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted a school that had a great, uh, you know, that had a middle distance program that I believed that I could, um, develop in, but then also I wanted to, uh, be a part of a strong four by four and Princeton had, um, decent 400 meter runners, and I could see potential in that. Um, when I was at Princeton, we actually ended up running 305 um, in the 4x4, four four, uh, breaking the Ivy League record, and um, going to the NCAA championships twice, and also running at the Championship of America um, at Penn Relays, which, you know, those things hadn't happened um, from, a, from an Ivy League school prior to us doing it for decades. So it was it was really cool to, to be a part of that. Um, and so yeah, Princeton had the right combination of everything that I was looking for. Um, so wh whereas one school may have one thing that was like outstanding, there were other things that, you know, um, weren't quite as um, outstanding. Princeton had a high degree of everything that I was looking for. Um, and I even had a little, 
notebook um, for all my official visits, and I would write down all the categories of things that I liked for each school, and you know, so I could compare each visit, you know, based off of kind of my rubric. And one of the criteria was food. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to be eating it. in these dining halls. I need to know how good this food is going to be. Um, yeah, and can't have four years of bad it, food. No, I'm mean. like, yeah, I mean, I was very serious about the food. When I would tell people, oh yeah, you know, I'm considering the food too. They were kind of laugh. I was like, no, I'm actually very serious. I would pull up my notebook and show them. <laughs> like, this is a very important part of my life. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so, so Princeton had a, had the right combination of everything I was looking for. So I'm, I'm very, you know, very, very fortunate that I had that opportunity. I never thought, you know, um, of, pursuing, you know, uh, Ivy League, yet alone one of the big three, Princeton, Harvard, Yale. I mean, the fact that I, you know, went there and had a great track career there um, and graduated um, from the number one undergraduate university in the country, um, you know, even nine years later, it still still feels a bit surreal. What did you study there? Uh, sociology with double minors in urban and environmental studies. How are you thinking about your future upon graduation from Princeton. You had a very successful athletic career there. You just mentioned what you were studying. Did you want to try and continue your athletic career or were you ready to close that chapter and get a job and move on with your life? It's very funny. Um, I just did another podcast and I talked about this a little bit, uh, how so many times I thought, okay, this is going to be my last time running. And then, you know, here I am still running. So, uh, I had a really tough junior year um, for a bunch of different reasons. I didn't run really well. Um, I had some challenges um, just like emotionally, personally. Um, I, I also, um, yeah, so so th- those were kind of, that was difficult to broach. Um, I think the coaching staff tried to, tried to support me the best way they could. But, you know, I, I think that... Um, you know, I, it was just a challenging year for me. And so um, I didn't run well, and I didn't break 150 outdoor um, in the 800. Um, it, was the first, it was the only year that I did not qualify for regionals in the, in the 800. I actually qualified in the 400, funny enough. So that was weird. I, w- I went to regionals in an event that I wasn't training for. Like I ran the 400 early outdoor as like a training race, and that qualified me for regionals. And so... I remember being at regionals practicing block starts because we had it trained, you know, to, to do yeah, blocks. Yeah. And I'm like, this is, this, I'm like, this ain't going to go well. You know, <laughs> like, how, like, how am I going <laughs> to, how am I going to like make a good effort in something that I really haven't been training for? Um, so that was, so that was, um, that was interesting. But um, yeah, so I, I walked away from that year just kind of really depleted and, I decided, you know, that I was like, you know what, I'm just going to finish my track career at Princeton and then move on with the rest of my life. And I had somehow convinced myself that I, you know, maybe I, maybe I was, you know, maybe I was beyond my prime and that, you know, uh, maybe I would never be able to run under 150 again. I mean, this is like ridiculous, right? It's like, what, you're going into your senior year of college and you're talking about maybe I'm like beyond my, like, it was it was just dumb. You're like twenty one, twenty two. I years know old. it's just stupidity, <laughs> but this is what I kind of convinced myself because I, you know, I, I really, I really thought that you know, 
I mean, to have a year where you don't break 150 a time that, you know, you had sailed past, you know, your freshman and sophomore year, um, and to be running 154s, 153s as a junior in high school, I, I mean, junior in college, um, you know, uh, only getting to 150 point something, um, you know, it was, it, that, that was really, really challenging. Um, and mentally, I just was not, I, was just, I just wasn't there. So we had a coaching um, switch. Uh, Coach Dolan um, ended up accepting the job at Penn. And then uh, Jason Vigilante came into Princeton to take over um, the, uh, the distance program. And so when he came in, he met with all of the athletes who were returning individually. And I remember going into his office and um, when, he, you know, to, to, when he wanted to meet me and I said, hey, you know, I had a bad year last year. You know, um, you know, I'm not quitting um, the team, but um, you know, all I want to do is just uh, kind of fulfill my commitment to the team. Um, you know, finish the year, and then move on with the rest of my life. So I told him that straight up. Um, so effectively, what I was telling him was, "Hey, I'm no, I'm just going to phone it in. You know, for, for this next year." And um, thankfully, he didn't allow me to do that. Um, he said, "Just come to practice." You know, just, just, just don't worry about any of that. Show up. Yep. Just, just come to practice, you know? So I said, okay. All right. So he made it really easy. The first couple of weeks I did nothing. It was great. He was like, all right, guys, go for like a, you know, a five mile run. Russell, just do a mile and then come here and like do some medicine balls. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And then jog a mile, throw some medicine balls. I'm done. All right. (laughs) And then, and then slowly but surely, um, you know, more and more will be added. And the next thing I know, I was like doing workouts again and, and, and enjoying it and loving it. And then he would kind of drop little hints like, all right, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to go to nationals, stuff like that. And I was like, wait, what? I, didn't I just tell y'all, you know, I was, I was basically not trying to like do this again. Um, so then I, 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 I refell in love with, with the sport. And, um, you know, that year was a, a great year. Uh, our, we ended up winning the uh, distance medley relay at NCAA's my senior year um, with uh, me running the 800 leg. And then um, I made nationals uh, in the 800 individually um, outdoors. And our 4x4 actually made uh, nationals um, outdoors as well. So it, so that was, a, that, that was a cool thing to go from, you know, basically uh, deciding that I wasn't going to do track anymore after – um, or I wasn't going to try to, you know, being really committed. My at nationals at uh, my senior year, I was running the 800, and I didn't make the final. And I felt like there was more there. I was like, I ran a, I ran a bad race. I, I knew I ran a bad race. I knew I had the ability to make the final, and I didn't. And I think that ate at me. And I remember saying to my mom, "This doesn't feel like this is it. Like this doesn't feel like the conclusion." Um, and so I made it, I made a decision at that point to, uh, to continue, um, because not necessarily for, I mean, it's never, for me, it's never been about like a certain accolade or a certain, a certain, um, award or yeah, you know, I, I, winning is great and I do aim to win when I race, but it's more about, all right, did I do the very best that I can and did I do what I know that I'm capable of doing. If I did those things, you know, to me that is uh, that is what is a victory for me. And so 
Um, and oftentimes I know if I am running at the best of my ability, the result is going to be at a high level. And so, um, and sometimes running at the best of my ability has generated, I mean, has, has resulted in a win. Um, and sometimes it hasn't, but if I know that I did the best that I could, um, and know that I put out great effort, you know, I will celebrate that, um, as an achievement. And so, um, yeah, I didn't have that experience. I think that kind of, uh, drove me to continue uh, running. But when I was a senior, I thought I was going to um, maybe work for a nonprofit for a couple of years. I thought about doing something like the Peace Corps or some sort of international kind of program. Um, yeah, I didn't really anticipate uh, running for this long. And I mean, I can't even tell you how many times it's been like, okay, this is the last year. 2016 was going to be the last year. And then 2017 was going to be like the last year. And then um, yeah, in 2017, I wasn't even sure if I was going to continue running, but I had a really good year 2017. Um, I that was the year I ran 146 outdoor. I I got fourth at indoor nationals, uh, made it to USA's outdoor. Um, so yeah, I was like, oh okay, and I just kind of kept going. So now I've just accepted the fact that you know I enjoy this and um, I enjoy training, and um, yeah, and I am going to be doing this, uh, you know, for, you know, until I feel like the time is right. And, you know, I'll, I'll know when that time is, but um, I, I'm still enjoying it. I'm still, um, you know, competing at a decent level. I haven't competed yet this year. Um, last year was interesting because I kind of was injured for a while. I basically convinced myself that I was, all right, yeah, we're done. Um, but then I kind of got back into it a little bit. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't think we're quite done. Let's see if we can make a push. And um, I started racing again. And I was like, hey, let's race and see what can happen. And my time started dropping. Um, and I was like, oh, maybe I can make it to the Olympic trials, which is a little ridiculous because I only <laughs> I was only training for about 12 weeks. <laughs> um, and um, I got... But why not try? Yeah, you know, I mean, I got down to 148 in 12 weeks of training, which is um, which is actually kind of nuts. But, um, but yeah, but that was uh, it was actually a lot of fun, and to get back out there and to race again, um, yeah, and it was you know I had some races that I won last year, a bunch of races I didn't. I mean, I got third in a race, I got seventh in a race, you know, but it was. It was great to kind of get back out there and, and, and feel what that felt like again. Um, and to, you know, have, having not raced for a couple years, I mean, that last time I raced was 2019, to be able to get in races and still have the tactics and still know how to make the moves and, and still feel, um, you know, uh, pretty comfortable um, in my racing tactics. I just didn't have the shape, you know, to be able to run. <laughs> there were some races where it was like, oh, yeah. I'm making the right move. I just don't have, I don't have like the energy to make this move. Yeah. So, all right, y'all. It was nice running with y'all for 650 meters, you know, <laughs> as, they, as they run away from me. Yeah. But, um, but that was, um, but that was, uh, you know, that was a great experience. And, um, you know, I was really happy to be able to, you know, to get back out there. So, um, you know, looking forward to doing that again this spring. We don't have a ton of time left and I do want to spend a bit talking about your work, but my last question related to you and your relationship with running is, do you think when the time comes where you can no longer compete at the level that you want to, or you're just no longer interested in competing, that running as 
an activity will still be a part of your life. Yeah, I, I still think it will be a part of my life. Um, my relationship with it will definitely change. It's interesting. Um, a lot of people say things like, oh, yeah, you know, I love going out and running. It's so therapeutic. And I was like, that is really nice that you can think that because running, like for me, um, is mostly always like training. It's almost, you know, it's almost always like, all right, I need to get out here. And even even the long run, just like I need to get out here and, you know, you know, you know, and, and do this run at a certain pace. But I do have a glimpse of, w- of what running as like therapy can look like, uh, because at the beginning of a season, um, like in the be- in the early fall, when I'm just starting to kind of build up my base work, I'll do the first couple weeks of runs without a watch, and I'll just go out and I'll just run. I'll just do it off a of feel, um, and sometimes I won't even like worry about. Like I, I won't even worry about the exact distance. I'll just go and run. Um, and it's like, yeah, I'll do this loop, but I know that's generally about six or eight or nine, you know, whatever, how, however many miles mm-hmm. it is. And, you know, I'll just go and, and, and we'll enjoy just getting out there and, and running and not have to worry about, you know, what pace I'm at, what's my heart rate, like any of that stuff, just, just kind of enjoying what that feels like. And that's really nice for those like two weeks until I, you know, then I kind of transition into more training mode. And then, yeah. you know, then it's kind of not to say that it's not enjoyable to go out there. Um, but the, the emphasis is different. You know, I'm looking at my watch, you know, it's a little bit more, um, there's, there's a different kind of uh, approach to it. But when I'm just out there, um, you know, those early, that early season is also early fall. It's still warm. I'm able to have my shirt off. Like it's just a nice, uh, you know, it's a nice thing. So, Definitely enjoy, um, you know, running as as therapy. So running will, you know, will always be a part of my life, and you know, uh, you know, to some degree, even um, even when um, you know I decide to, you know, not be um, a competitive uh, um, runner. Um, well, you know, at a certain level, I probably will still, you know, enter, you know, probably like community five Ks and stuff for fun. But um, you know, in terms of track racing. Um, you know, when I transition to doing something else, um, running, I definitely anticipate that still having a big part of, being a big part of my life. Dude, I'll tell you what, speaking from my own experience at almost 40 years old and many years away from the track and I was never at your level, I just spiked up two weekends ago for the first time in 16 years and nowhere close to my 1500 meter PR, but it's still, it can still feel good and it can still be really fun just to like be in an appropriate heat and employ the tactics and to take some risks and make moves and respond to what's going on around you. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Like if you ever get to that point, like years down the road, you're like, ah, oh, just like I missed, I missed that part of it, but you know, I'm not going to run 145 or 146 or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, but you still want to get out there. I mean, those opportunities do, do exist and they can be enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, one of the cool things is, um, you know, kind of, uh, I really do like being in a race and respond, like, you respond to other people, you feed off it, off of the energy of others. Um, you know, it's just a, it's, it's something that when you've done it and, and you've been a part of it, you know what it is, um, but um, it's hard to really kind of put into words or describe uh, for people who haven't experienced it themselves, um, particularly races where you Aren't in the lane, aren't in lanes all the you know um, the entire time. Um, 
I think there is something about kind of feeling each other's moves being being around. I mean, even being able to sense someone, I think it's really amazing how, you know, um, you can sense when someone is coming up on you even before you hear them. You just can sense yep. it. Um, um, and you, you do get that in, in the lane events too. I do remember that in the 400, but, um, but you know, your awareness is a little different um, because you're kind of, uh, you know, you're eight lanes wide. Um, and so, um, you know, you kind of have to, you still sense the people. It's just, it's just different. It's just different. Um, I do, I do miss, I, I do miss running high level 400s. Um, I haven't run an open 400 since college. Um, I don't really think uh, that is something that I'm going to be doing <laughs> uh, in the very immediate uh, future. I mean, I might try to run an open 400 um, later this spring um, if things work out, but it hasn't really fit into, you know, what I've been trying to do. So, um, but um, yeah, and, you know, and sometimes you have to, you know, recognize that, you know, that was, that was something that you did, you know, when you were younger, but, um, but uh, it is a special kind of feeling that's different than the 800. It's more intense than the 800 in some ways, but it lasts a lot shorter, um, which is nice because it's like more intense burn, but it's <laughs> only 100. And it's over quick. Uh, yeah, you know, the 800, sometimes, you know, that monkey gets in your back and you're like, wow, I have 200 meters left. This is going to suck. <laughs> you know, um, it's kind of like... Um, you know, I mean, I think every event has that moment, you know, in the race where it's like, you know, if you're feeling something um, at that certain point, you know, you're in trouble. You know, I think, you know, yeah, a lot of milers talk about that third lap, you know, you know, if, if you're losing focus at third lap, then you might you might have some trouble in the last lap. So, um, you know, I'm sure other events have, you know, have, have the similar, you know, markers. You know, I've heard of the marathon if that 20, 20, 21 mile marker, um, you know, is usually when uh, – <laughs> Things can get really, really tough. So, yeah, you know, I think every event has something similar like that. I appreciate you sharing so much about yourself. I think a lot of people listening to this, if they are aware of you, they know you for the advocacy work that you've done recently, helping save a lot of the men's track and field programs at Brown University, University of Minnesota, Clemson, uh, William and Mary, I think. And now, you are working for the Tracksmith Foundation, which is a new initiative as its executive director. And I don't want to go over everything that you've done to help save some of these collegiate programs, not because I, I don't think it's important. I think it is. And I've shared a lot about it in my newsletter, but you've also told those stories many times on other podcasts. So I think people should go listen to that. You did one with Danae Dormy on the Grounded podcast, which I thought was really great. And other places as well. I just saw you on Two Black Runners not that long ago. But in your current role at the Tracksmith Foundation as its executive director, my first question is, how did that come to be? I mean, they had supported your work for, I think, a few months at least as you were helping a lot of these collegiate programs. But now, like, this is your job. Um, you know, you get to do this full time and pour all of your time and energy into it. And the first thing I'm curious about is just just how that came to be, the mechanics of it. Yeah, so it was, it was really interesting. So I think it started, uh, so last, as you mentioned, uh, Tracksmith did uh, – support my work last year right when i was starting to work with clemson and so um it was a four-month uh you know um 
grant um, stipend. And um, it was really, really helpful <laughs> because I was at that point, um, I, I hadn't been working for, for a while and that was getting old. <laughs> and I also, um, I was kind of operating off of doing some tutoring and, and a part-time um, remote education job that I had. Um, the remote education job was ending and the tutoring was drying up a little bit because uh, because of COVID. And so, you know, I was actually thinking, okay, I need to get a regular job and I might need to not do this stuff anymore, you know, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and right when I was kind of having that feeling, that's when Tracksmith reached out. I mean, Nick Willis um, um, reached out to me and uh, yeah. And, you know, it was really kind of remarkable because I didn't, I didn't really, you know, think about, you know, the fact that something like this could, could be possible. So they gave me the stipend four months and it was really appreciated. Um, after that, um, we, Tracksmith and I had stayed in contact, um, you know, uh, over the next series of months. Um, I, <clears throat> at the Olympic trials, I stayed at the uh, track house, the Tracksmith track house mm-hmm. um, with them. Um, and that was great. I got to, got to interact with everyone there. Um, while I did some, you know, media kind of stuff, um, you know, uh, around, uh, around Eugene. In the fall of 2021, Tracksmith reached back out to me and said, Hey, we're still in, in the preliminary phases, but we're, we're thinking about building a foundation. And one of the components would be kind of supporting, um, you know, track and collegiate track and field, like helping to, to, to save collegiate track and field programs. Um, and so would you be interested in doing something like that? And, um, I said, yeah, I would love to, you know, uh, I would love to consider something like that. I was thinking about formalizing the work that I was doing anyway, but kind of had been dragging my feet on it and had been reluctant to kind of take that plunge. And so, um, the fact that Tracksmith was thinking about doing it and the fact that it was going to be connected to an already established entity instead of me trying to build something um, on my own and, you know, trying to fundraise on my own. And, you know, it, that would have been – it could have occurred, but I think it would have been more challenging um, yeah. um, in a lot of ways. And so um, the fact that Tracksmith uh, was going to build out something uh, was really attractive to me. You know, they said they were still thinking about it, but, you know, I said certainly open – uh, to the idea, and over the next few months, we had a few more meetings where we kind of uh, kept uh, flushing out the idea, and then um, you know, then they told me, "Hey, we're going to be moving forward with this. Um, do you want to do it?" You know, and, and I agreed, and um, you know, then in December, we uh, you know, we we announced the formal partnership um, uh, where you know, or you know, we announced that the uh, that the Tracksmith Foundation would be launched and that. Um, you know, that I would be the inaugural executive director. And, you know, really grateful that they, one, saw the important need to build something like this, and two, uh, that they recognized me and and, and saw the value that I could bring and also trusted uh, me to be able to uh, continue the work that that I've been uh, doing for the past... uh, for the past year and a half, and um, the fact that I, you know, uh, did uh, end up saving or helping to save Clemson's track and field program with the help of alumni, students, and parents, um, 
through the generous backing of Tracksmith, um, you know, it only shows that you know the support that something like this can give um, can uh, garner some amazing results. And so, really appreciative that they afforded me this opportunity personally, um, but then also really grateful that um, they afforded this opportunity just for the betterment of track and field as a collective community. Most of your work to this point has gone into saving these track and field programs that were going to get cut. That's not the only mission of the foundation. So what is the overarching goal of the Tracksmith Foundation? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the overarching goal, um, the purpose of it is to uh, really enhance track and field, uh, to increase participation, um, and also to uh, support track and field as a sport that is equitable, a sport that is inclusive, uh, along many lines of difference, including gender, race, uh, and class. And these are, you know, these are values that are important. We know that track and field is a very egalitarian sport. It's a very broad-based sport. And so we look to support track and field, not only uh, in the collegiate arena, but also in the youth arena um, and beyond. And so um, really looking uh, to support um, the different communities that are engaged with track and field, um, help to enhance that engagement, but also to provide ways that uh, communities you know, may not be as engaged with track and field and provide opportunities for them to become engaged. And so, um, you know, really primarily uh, focusing on youth and college uh, to start, uh, but uh, with ideas of how that can be expanded um, beyond uh, those two focus areas. Um, and so that's uh, that's something that, um, you know, that, that we'll be, uh, you know, really, really kind of working on. And, you know, outside of the foundation, um, Tracksmith has, uh, you know, shown itself to be dedicated to kind of the growth of track and field um, in many different ways. Um, one of the greatest ways is that through the average support program um, and the way that they provide uh, support to high-level elite athletes who uh, don't have traditional sponsorships. And a number of these athletes actually made the Olympics last year. And so, um, you know, it, it's been a tremendous uh, um boon to uh, a lot of, uh, you know, athletes' careers who just needed, you know, some additional support. So, um, uh, you know, they, they've already kind of uh, shown uh, themselves to be an organization that's committed to building, you know, track and field, um, you know, from the grassroots, uh, from the ground up. And so the foundations will just be an, a natural extension of some of the work that the, uh, that the organization, that the business side is already doing. From where you sit as executive director, what does that support look like in action when you're supporting youth programs and collegiate programs? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a really great question. So what I could speak to uh, will be our college um, advocacy side. And so we are um, still actively supporting some teams that have been cut. And so 
um, working specifically with Central Michigan University right now. And I'm also still working with the University of Minnesota's uh, team um, because their outdoor team was reinstated, but their indoor team was not. And so seeing if we can figure out ways that the indoor team get reinstated um, is something that we're actively working towards as well. So that's a lot of behind the scenes work. I've been talking with state legislators of the different um, states, um, speaking with uh, different legal entities that I can't really disclose too much about right now, but um, um, you know, speaking with uh, uh, groups such as the ACLU and other organizations like that. Um, so just a lot of conversations at this point um, but, and, and also a lot of kind of strategy meetings um, because the, the nature of the fight for these particular programs uh, is a lot more kind of procedural um, and figuring out kind of a procedural process that we could use uh, in order to garner um, the desired outcome. And so that takes time, that takes um, that takes a kind of uh, a, different ways of looking at the situation strategically. Um, in terms of youth and other groups that we'll be looking um, to support, um, our organization is um, currently building out those strategies. Um, we are putting together the uh, internal uh, structure and organization. And, um, you know, there's just uh, some legally required things that you have to do for a foundation, um, such as uh, uh, board procedures and, and and voting procedures and, and putting together certain um, required things of that nature. And so um, we're uh, finalizing a lot of those things now. We do have um, ideas on the table and we do have um, some great um, things that we are planning to do. We're just not at a point where we can announce those publicly yet. But um, uh, we look to hopefully announce uh, some of these um, projects, um, particularly that will support uh, some of these other communities in the coming months. But um, the thing that I can talk about publicly now is some of the behind the scenes work that I'm doing uh, with uh, Central Michigan University and with the University of Minnesota. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you have the opportunity to to do this work, especially on the collegiate side, because I don't think what, or I don't think the average fan really understands how how bad it would have been if a school like Clemson cuts their track and field program. And Clemson is a football powerhouse, and this isn't to knock on football at all. But if that school can get eliminate its track and field program, it makes it so much easier for similar schools to do the same thing. I think there'd be this domino effect. And it's it's because of the work that you've done and, and will continue to do that hopefully this this won't be the case. And I think the the repercussions are more than just at, at one school. I mean we're talking as we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation, like one of the most accessible egalitarian sports that exists that creates opportunities for so many athletes, especially black men at many of these universities. And that would just go away um, without the work that, that you've done and, and will continue to do. So I'm grateful that you have that opportunity. And then on the other end, to make this sport even more accessible than it already is to people from a young age and something that they can continue to do throughout their entire life. And much like you experienced when you were part of the track club in Philly, and as they say, the mission, they want to get you to, to college, not necessarily like compete in college, but get you that, you know, that opportunity. So 
like this almost seems like full circle for you in a lot of ways. Like having heard your your background here, how you got your start in the sport, you know, the opportunities that, you know, that it's created to you. And now, you know, you're in this very unique position where you get to not only hopefully preserve it at the collegiate level where, you know, as we've seen, like it it can be going away for some programs, but also to to grow it at the base, which hopefully will only make the whole thing stronger. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that it's been it's been tremendously important. Um you know, you said it was like a full circle thing for me, and it really was um a full circle thing for me. Um knowing that I personally benefited um from 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 these really important experiences uh you know in my life um and knowing that these experiences have given me opportunity that otherwise may not be possible. I really wanted to ensure that these sort of opportunities remained in place for others. I really felt that if Clemson went down, we were going to see a number of other top institutions cut their programs. Um, I almost, almost, I can almost guarantee that we would have saw that. And so it was really vitally important to me that we saved Clemson because if not, I believe we were going to see a tidal wave. And um, yeah. to me, that's not hyperbole because, I mean, if you look at any of the media that covered any of the other programs that I helped save, um, Brown and the University of Minnesota, I was on the record saying, hey, if we don't stop this, it's going to happen again. And when Minnesota occurred, I said, if we, you know, this is our warning call. I was on some uh, outlets, it's been a lot of outlets, and and I and I talked about Minnesota saying, "Hey, if we don't stop this now, this is going to be a problem." And I felt, and I feel like, if Minnesota was the canary in the coal mine, um, <laughs> the uh, Clemson was was an even larger canary, you know. And if we didn't stop Clemson, I can almost guarantee we would have seen a lot of programs get cut. And the reason why. They target these uh, schools target track and field. It's a bit complicated. I'll just quickly go over it. Um, track and field tends to be a large sport, um, and it also comprises or is composed of three seasons. So you have um, cross country, indoor, and outdoor track. These are three different seasons. They count as three sports, but they're able to be collapsed um, as one kind of budgetary line item. And so when universities look at their year-end expenses, they see this large budgetary line item for effectively three sports, but it counts as one. That's one reason. Um, so you have three sports that count as one sport, and so it, it it appears to be very expensive in comparison to other sports that only have one season of play. Um, it's an, it doesn't generate um, you know it doesn't generate revenues in the same way as football and basketball. Football and basketball are the only sports that turn a profit. <laughs> um, all of the other sports in college. Um, you know, uh, generate a loss, you know, uh, and that loss, but, um, uh, but, you know, that sort of language isn't used for many of the other sports all the time. But when schools are looking at budgets, uh, track and field, when they look at, when they're just looking at losses, kind of sticks out in that regard. But then also for Title IX purposes, since track and field counts as three sports, the athletes count for each season of play. So if you have a cross-country athlete, they count three times. If you have an indoor and outdoor track athlete, they count twice. Yep. So you end up having a team of 50 men counting or being 
equivalent to about 80 to 90 athletes because of the way it's counted. If you have a Title IX proportionality problem, proportionality is when is is under the Title IX law. There are three different prongs to it, but the biggest, the prong that seems to get the most focus is the proportionality requirement where schools need to be, their athletic offerings need to be in proportionality with um, their on-campus uh, undergraduate male-to-female ratio. So if you have an undergraduate uh, male-to-female ratio that's 45% men and 55% women, the number of athletes you have needs to be about 45 to 55%, well, athlete opportunities. And so um, if you have a disparity where you have 50-50 male athlete opportunities versus female athletes, athlete opportunities, but your school has 45% male, 55% female in terms of the undergraduate population, you need to uh, address that discrepancy. You can address that discrepancy by adding additional women's opportunities, which is within the spirit of Title IX, or you can address it by removing men, male opportunities. And so an easy target is track and field because, oh, there are 50 athletes here, but if we get rid of these 50 athletes, we'll, we'll get 90 spots. And so 90 spots uh, oftentimes is enough to rebalance the ratios um, to be in compliance with the ratios that the school um, has in the general undergraduate population. And since most state schools have increased female enrollment compared to male enrollment, a lot of schools are looking at Title IX compliance issues with regard to proportionality. And so track and field, men's track and field in particular, ends up being a target for those two reasons. One, due to finances, but then two, um, due to uh, Title IX proportionality uh, compliance. Um, But both of these issues can be addressed without getting rid of track and field, uh, given that track and field is one of the only sports in college that offers significant opportunity to athletes who uh, are black and then also athletes who are um, lower income. Um, and those categories sometimes overlap, but sometimes they are mutually exclusive as well. You know, one one example I do like to give are, you know, there are a lot of track and field athletes who are not black, who come from more rural areas, who are able to access opportunities um, via the sport that way. And those opportunities just aren't um, present uh, really in the other non-revenue sports that tend to be very affluent. You know, think lacrosse, think um, you know, think crew, think hockey, hockey. Um, you know, not begrudging these sports at all, but structurally they tend to be very cost prohibitive, um, and they also are very racially homogenous. So, all right, whew, that, I think that got a <laughs> went over everything. <laughs> Last question, because we need to wrap this one up. You are still very early days, not only in your advocacy, but in your role as the director of the Tracksmith Foundation. What do you hope is the lasting legacy of your work? Yeah, so thank you for that. Um, what, I, what I want my legacy to be, uh, I want it to be a living legacy. And what I mean by that is I want there to be these... Uh, these opportunities preserved um, uh, all over the country in colleges. I want uh, there to be uh, enhanced pathways for kids to get into college um, uh, via uh, different ways that we can support um, uh, uh, the ways that kids can get into college. I want uh, there to be enhanced uh, youth programs. Um, And so, 
you know, if we do this and we do this well, and we do this right, these opportunities the, uh, will exist, um, you know, uh, far beyond when I, you know, eventually uh, transition to uh, something else. I would like this work to live on, you know, for many, many years to come. And the reason why it will be living is because you will have these athletes um, through college, through college access, through youth, um, experiencing these programs year after year after year after year after year. And that means it's going to touch the lives of, you know, this kid this year, and then the next kid the next year, the next kid the next year. And that's a way that a legacy can live. And that's a way that legacy can live in a way that uh, is, is beneficial to so many because it offers you know, valuable, life-changing, you know, life-altering you know, opportunity uh, to, in a way that's, in a way that replicates itself year after year after year after year after year. Russell, you're doing important work. I am super appreciative of it. I'm trying to support it the best that I can through this platform. I thank you for taking the time to come on with me today and joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Uh, thank you so much. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Precision Fuel and Hydration for sponsoring this episode of the show. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 from New Balance is an absolute workhorse and has been my go-to trainer for some time now. It's available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. Precision Fuel and Hydration has a wide range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you can perform at your best in training and racing. Head to precisionfuelandhydration.com and use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. Then book a free one-on-one -on -one video consultation with the team to refine your hydration and fueling strategy for your next race. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TMS22 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out as always to my man, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>